This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week, we're marking another important milestone in the historic journey of two former enslaved people and abolitionists who escaped from America to England in the 1800s. They ended up in London, and now more than 170 years after they arrived, a blue plaque marks their former home in Hammersmith. So, joining us to discuss Ellen and William Craft's journey to England and their abolitionist campaigns are... Hello, my name is Dr Hannah Rose Murray. I'm an early career Lever Hume Fellow at the University of Edinburgh and my research specialises in African-American testimony in the British Isles during the 19th century. Hello, I'm Howard Spencer, Senior Historian for the Blue Plaques team. Well, thank you both for coming on to the podcast. This is a really fantastic story and a really interesting episode I think we've got here. First of all, Hannah Rose, could you give us some background on Ellen and William Craft's birth into US chattel slavery? Where did they live? How did they meet? I'll start with Ellen Craft first. She was born into US chattel slavery just outside of Macon in Georgia in 1826. Her mother was an enslaved African-American named Maria. She was raped by her enslaver, Major James E. Smith. So Ellen was a child of rape and she could actually pass for a white person as a result of that. This is an unimaginable position to be in. She was forced to work in the household, faced with a constant threat of, of rape and sexual violence. We also have William Craft. Again, he was born into US chattel slavery. He trained as a cabinet maker. He was sold to a Macon accountant and, and white enslaver named Ira Taylor. And his family were um, separated. They were forcibly sold away from him to pay for one of his first enslavers' debts, essentially. And when he was on British soil, William Craft would recount the harrowing and unimaginable story of the forced separation of his family, particularly with his sister, who he never saw or heard from again. But uh, the couple met and they married in around about 1846. Just before we continue, obviously, for listeners who don't know, can you explain the term US chattel slavery? Yeah, so we have to be really careful when we talk about language, about this subject, about slavery, enslavement. And essentially, it's about honouring and respecting the lives of of people of colour and African-Americans who were enslaved. So I think it's a good choice to use the term enslave rather than slave because it's gives the impression or it's more about the agency of these individuals. It separates their identity from their circumstances of slavery, as it were. The other thing that we have to try and be careful about is using the word enslaver rather than master or slave owner or things like that, because master or slave master tends to obscure the humanity of enslaved people. And it kind of empowers that person, the master, rather than um, African-Americans. And the other thing as well, we should also be really explicit about what was happening during enslavement and chattel slavery. So rape and sexual violence, instead of using common terms sometimes that you see in the media or the press, like sex or interracial sex, it was rape and violence. So that language is really, really important. And if we don't get it right, it essentially reinforces the violence against enslaved people in the first place, if that makes sense. And how did they then get out of America from the state that they were in? Because I understand they were in the South, weren't they? Yes, they were in the US South. They were in Georgia, so one of the southern states. And essentially, the Crafts 
determined that they weren't going to have children in, in slavery because those children could be seized and sold away at a moment's notice. So they resolved to escape. And it's this extraordinary escape attempt where they decide to escape over the sort of Christmas period of 1848, where Ellen Craft in particular crosses the boundaries of race, gender, class, and she performs and dresses up as a white Southern man. And the escape plan essentially is they catch a series of trains and steamboats from Georgia all the way up to Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. And this death-defying trip would take about four days. They would travel through cities like Savannah in Georgia, Charleston in South Carolina, Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, all the way through Maryland and, and, and Pennsylvania. And it was a really huge risk. They were traveling outside a county and state they had never been outside of before which is incredibly risky in itself. And also the escape attempt is, is incredibly risky too. If they had been caught, they would have been arrested, tortured, and, and almost certainly sold away from each other, never to see each other again. Yeah, it is a fantastic story. Could you go into a bit more detail then about how the wife in the partnership actually dressed up, some of the detail about what she wore in order to disguise herself as a, a white man? Yes, so the disguise was essentially that Ellen Craft would perform as this white man named William Johnson. Again, they travel from Georgia to Philadelphia under the premise uh, or the pretense that Ellen would be taking her enslaved manservant, so William, her husband, to the northern states to seek medical treatment. And part of this disguise involves wearing a hat and a suit, cravat, cutting her hair, putting bandages around her face to obscure the fact that she didn't have a beard or anything like that. She wore spectacles and she also wore like a bandage or a poultice over her right arm, sort of feigning this disability, the fact that she couldn't sign her name for train tickets or steamboat tickets because at the time in the US South under enslavement, African-Americans and enslaved people were forbidden to learn to read and write. It was a punishment if they were caught doing so, punishment by torture or even death in certain places. So they had to hide the fact that Ellen Craft couldn't sign her name again to get those train tickets. So that sort of feigning disability was a really essential part of the disguise. And it was a really well thought out and careful plan. And it had to be well thought out and careful because, as I've already mentioned, it was so risky. And if they had been caught, the consequences would have been incredibly severe. There's so many elements on this journey which show how inspiring and courageous the couple were, particularly for Ellen Craft, because she's posing as this white man. And to give you an example, when she sat in the train, due to segregationist and racist practices in the US South, white people were in a different carriage than people of color. So Ellen is sat in this carriage, surrounded by white women, white men, white enslavers, completely by herself, which mm. is terrifying in itself. But also, at one point, a white man walks in who Ellen recognizes as a friend of her former enslaver. So there's this added terror this man is going to recognize her. And there's all sorts of things that happen. It would make such a, a brilliant Hollywood film in, in this regard because mm. it's just so risky. So at one stage, they have trouble getting onto a train because the train conductor doesn't accept the fact that Ellen is sort of feigning disability and that she can't sign her name. And the train is pulling in and they've only got a few minutes really to get a train ticket to get on that train. So they managed to get on that train and obviously make it to the north. But it was an incredibly sort of hair raising escape attempt for sure. 
The other part of her disguise, of course, is the fact that she would have to communicate with people. How did she then sort of lower her voice? That's another really interesting point because, and that was part of the sort of careful attention to detail and training they went through before they embarked on, on the trip. So William coached her to try and get the pitch of her voice right and even actually walking like kind of confidence of a white southern man in that environment mm. and just getting used to the clothes the hat the cravat they had to be perfect because if it went wrong it would have had disastrous consequences so again those little things would have made such a huge difference and also looking other white people in the eye as well and, and again that, that confidence of projecting of, of a white man's confidence too was an incredibly important point to get across that Ellen did incredibly well and there was also a point on one of the trains where in the carriage white men and women are trying to engage her in conversation and at one point she actually pretends to be deaf and sort of feigns her illness even more so mm. because by engaging in those conversations, there might have been a greater chance that she would have been found out. So that's another sort of performative tactic that she uses as well to try and keep that disguise as perfect as possible. We know that obviously they got to England in the end and we, we're going to get to that part. But I suppose some people are sitting here listening and thinking, how did they get all the clothes for the disguise? Yes, yeah, so Ellen Craft was a seamstress, so she made some of the clothes herself. And William Craft actually purchased some of the, the men's clothing. So there were several days where he was essentially hired out by his enslaver to make uh, cabinets and he was a carpenter. And some of that was sold and he was allowed to keep certain elements of the money himself. And he would use that money to purchase some of that disguise. I see. And we know that eventually they made their way to Boston uh, they went from Georgia to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and then Boston, Massachusetts. That's a really, really long journey. How many hundred miles is it, do we know? So it's definitely over a thousand because the crafts title their later book, their narrative, Running a Thousand Miles for Freedom. So they've managed to sort of calculate that number of miles to really get across how dangerous that trip was and how amazing it was it succeeded. And once they're in Boston, at this point, are they fairly safe? Not really. So they settle in Boston for a very short period. They attend anti-slavery lectures. They circulate this image of Ellen Craft dressed in men's clothing through these anti-slavery circles and these lectures. But they're essentially not really safe in any part of the northern states, just like other black freedom fighters, free people of colour, but also those who had been enslaved and made it to the northern states. And that's particularly that risk particularly increases after the Fugitive Slave Act was passed in 1850. And essentially what that law does is that it makes it legal for the seizure and return of formerly enslaved women, men and children who had escaped, who had built lives for themselves in the North. And it made the US government responsible for that seizure and kidnapped. And also it essentially deputizes and, and forces US citizens and free citizens to do that as well, to be part of that seizure and kidnap. And you can imagine the response from black and white abolitionists on this. And there are some incredibly violent, fraught episodes in the northern states, particularly in Boston and Massachusetts, where this act was challenged and defied by black freedom fighters and also white US citizens as well. And to give a, a clear example of that with the crafts is that 
they hear rumors that their former enslavers have sent white slave catchers all the way up to Boston to drag both of them back down into slavery again. Mm. And there's a really brilliant story where William Craft essentially sends Ellen to stay with some friends for safety. And he stays with a fellow survivor of slavery and freedom fighter named Lewis Hayden, right in the heart of Boston. And they lie in wait for these slave catchers to approach Hayden's home. And when they do, they throw open the door and they say very loudly to these white men that we have lined the front door with dynamite, with explosives, and they were quite willing to blow themselves up rather than ever go back into slavery. And this very bold and fierce tactic works and the white men back off. And it mm. gives William a, a small chance to reunite with his wife. And obviously then they decide to leave for England. Many African-Americans traveled to Canada across the border. And even then it wasn't a completely guaranteed safe space, but definitely mm. in terms of comparison, obviously safer than the South. But again, this term of safety is almost meaningless when we consider that constant threat of violence, of death, but also thinking about how incredibly racist the northern states of the US was as well. So they're in Boston and they managed to shoo away through the threat of self-destruction these slave catchers who've turned up. Then they make their journey across to England. How long did their journey take to England and where did they travel to? So from Boston, they traveled all the way up to Maine and then to Nova Scotia around about November 1850. And they traveled via Cunard steamship to Liverpool. And at first, they were actually refused tickets because the clerk was racist. He didn't want them to board the ship. Hmm. And the tickets were only secured through a letter, a supportive letter from white abolitionists. But the journey took around about 10 days or so. They arrived in Liverpool in December 1850. And Ellen Craft was severely ill at that point. They actually stayed in the city for about two to three weeks until she could fully recover. What did she come down with? Do we know? It's never said. It could have been a very strong case of influenza, obviously enhanced by seasickness on the journey. Possibly she had been sick as well before boarding, but just the huge emotional turmoil as well, which obviously has an impact on our physical bodies as well of everything that they had gone through. How long was that journey then, I suppose, in those days? Could take around 10 days to two weeks. So that's a, that's a long time at sea, especially if you're not used to being at sea as well. After they arrived in Liverpool in England, how did they start campaigning for the abolition? They obviously had this letter with them that had helped them get on board. So obviously they had some sort of connection with England. Yes, and I could speak for hours about this question because there are so many things the Crafts did to campaign for abolition on, on British soil, let alone American soil. And they worked with British and Irish abolitionists. They organised and anti-slavery lecturing tours, which were often incredibly exhausting and very grueling as they traveled up and down the country, speaking in Edinburgh and Glasgow, and then Newcastle, Carlisle, Leeds, Nottingham, Bristol, just to name a few, as well as so many small towns and, and villages and hamlets. And those networks with those abolitionists were really important as well. They raised money for the abolitionist cause, which they sent to the US. Ellen often made clothes for escaping freedom fighters who had sort of made a similar journey to them you know, through escape. There's so many elements of what they did for campaigning against the slave trade and, and slavery. So another really important one is 
William Craft travels to the African continent twice in the early 1860s to essentially try and encourage the British government to import cotton from that region instead of importing it from the US South. As in the 1850s, pretty much when the crafts arrive, 90% of the cotton that's imported into Liverpool was coming from the US South. It was essentially through enslaved labor, which is a huge, staggering amount. So by importing cotton from the African continent or even India, it would be a way of economically damaging US slavery. They wrote a, a book. They created, again, long-lasting anti-slavery networks. They staged protests at places like the Great Exhibition here in London in 1851. They turned their home, which obviously we'll talk a little bit about later, but the, the home where the plaque is erected was turned into a sort of hub of black activism. The crafts invited fellow black lecturers like Sarah Parker Raymond to stay. She was instrumental in organizing the rescue of other freedom fighters and survivors of slavery, including her own mother. They had this emotional reunion at King's Cross in London. And lastly, one of the other things that I'm just starting to research really with William Craft is that in some of his lectures in the, in the later period, so in the early 1860s, he has paintings constructed and made in, and as well as model trains where he shows Ellen Craft sat in this disguise as a white man in that train carriage, which is just mm. an incredible picture, as it were, no pun intended, of how William Craft was getting across to predominantly white audiences how dangerous that escape was. How long was all this activism taking then? Because from the time they arrived in Liverpool to the time they got to London to the other journeys that William made as well to the African continent, that, that sounds like a lot of time has passed. So how many years? So pretty much since their arrival on English soil, so the end of 1850 until they leave by the end of the 1860s, every day they're here, every week they're here, every month, they are doing something for abolition of US slavery as, as well as campaigning against the slave trade more generally. They are doing all of these things, they're staging these protests because they know that their protest and their participation in all of this social justice work is going to have a real impact on the US movement. You know, They believe that their actions, as well as other black freedom fighters and African-Americans who traveled over to England to do the very same thing that the crafts were doing and participating in that movement, you know, their actions here would reverberate back towards the US and, and have that real impact on, on, on the movement. Britain had abolished the slave trade in 1807, slavery across the British Empire by the end of the 1830s, although there were elements of slavery that still existed in some of the British colonies. But many African-Americans who were traveling over to Britain, again, including the crafts, used the example of British abolition to say, you know, that's great that Britain as a nation has abolished slavery, but you still have work to do. You still have to challenge and help to abolish slavery in the US, not only morally as human beings, but also practically Britain was so central in creating, establishing, promoting the slave trade and slavery in, in other countries that William Craft actually says during one of his meetings, he stands up to, again, a predominantly white audience and he says, I would not have been enslaved. My parents would not have been enslaved. My grandparents would not have been enslaved if it wasn't for Britain. So technically, Britain has this moral, economic, political, social obligation and duty to abolish slavery in the US. How did they get support in England then? I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, financial support, lodgings, that kind of thing. 
So there were numerous abolitionists on both sides of the Atlantic that helped them out. In Boston, the white radical abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison had several contacts in Britain, including the Wiggum family in Edinburgh, the Webb family in Dublin, the Eslin family in Bristol, all of whom were really active in the anti-slavery cause. And they provided homes and networks for the crafts when they stayed in those respective cities during their anti-slavery lecturing tours. They exchanged letters with each other and pamphlets and attended anti-slavery meetings altogether. And then you have other abolitionists like George Thompson. He was an MP and a very staunch anti-slavery supporter and, and friend of William Lloyd Garrison as well. And several famous men and women from all corners of society in Britain, including Harriet Martineau, very famous abolitionist, Lady Byron, who provided financial support and Together with Stephen Lushington, who was a lawyer and another MP, they actually provided a temporary home for the crafts in Ockham and Surrey, where the crafts lived, worked, taught students and, and where they learned to read and write. And also, it's important to note that they supported themselves as well. You know, William was a carpenter by trade, as it were. He was a cabinet maker. Ellen was a seamstress. They sold Ellen's portrait at the end of their anti-slavery meetings. They wrote a book which sales would help support themselves and also donations from anti-slavery meetings whenever William Craft would stand up and speak those donations would go not only towards their own family but also towards the anti-slavery cause and actually helping to free other enslaved family members in the US as well. Now you mentioned family there did they have family then when they came to England because you said at the start that uh, they decided that they wouldn't have children because they would be enslaved in the US but did they change their mind once they got to English soil? Yes that was one of the reasons why they wanted to escape to obviously first the northern states and then to England and they raised five children in the UK and this was a, a radical statement in itself, particularly for Ellen Crafts as a black woman. It was an incredibly important part of the freedom struggle. She'd escaped enslavement where your children were cruelly, could be cruelly seized from you at any moment. And they were here in Britain raising those five children. So that's a sort of another activist thing that the Crafts did by raising children completely thousands of miles away from the US and where they've been born. Now, you mentioned Ockham in Surrey, which was a residence for them, but we're talking mostly about the blue plaque to Ellen and William that's been unveiled in London at one of their former homes. This is in Hammersmith in uh, the west of London. Howard, do you know whereabouts it is in relation to the tube station? Because most people probably know how to get around London on, on the underground. So how do they get there? Sure. Well, it's between Hammersmith Tube and Ravenscourt Park. It's in number 26 Cambridge Grove, which is a turning to the north off King Street, which is the main drag through Hammersmith. So if you walk in a westerly direction along there, then Cambridge Grove is, is a fairly short distance just up that road. It's basically um, very, very close to the railway. It's just south. It is one house south of the district in Piccadilly Lines. So ah. it'll be a fine, fine view for passing passengers as well of the black. Yeah, that's interesting. And of course, I'm getting images in my mind now of these tight moments where the couple were um, travelling by train in the States. And obviously there they are, right? Their house is right next to a, a train line, which is a weird sort of connection. Can you describe the property, though, apart from obviously being near a train line? Well, sure. It's a, it's a semi-detached house now. It was a terrace of four dating from the mid-19th century. 
not a large house at all, not very large for a family of, of their size, and given that they had guests as well, as Hannah Rose was just saying. But it, it was just a sort of two bays wide, so just two windows wide. It has a front door currently painted blue, which teams with the theme nicely. The mansard attic was put on later, as was the side extension to the north. So to the north, there were two other houses which were demolished to allow the widening of the railway. This particular property, was this their main London base for all their work? Yes, well, normally we look at all addresses, all possible addresses within Greater London and choose the one that is, for various reasons, the most suitable, the most visible, the most significant in their lives and so on. And in this case, the research, which was done by one of our consultant historians, Sarah Whittingham, revealed that this really was the only one that we could actually definitely say that they lived at. And and the evidence that um, we found was that from the book, Thousand Miles, it's mentioned in there where the, the number at that stage was 12 Cambridge Road, and that corresponds with the present 26 Cambridge Grove. Like many streets in London, it was ah. renamed and renumbered, which is a bit of a pitfall that we have to yeah. try and try and deal with in, in many cases. I suspect you were going through old maps and that sort of thing, weren't you? That's right. That's well, that, yes, I mean, Sarah, Sarah did all that kind of work to make sure that we got the right house, because otherwise it, it, it is a present possibility that you can get the wrong house if you get a renumbering wrong, of course. Mm. We naturally, we're very keen to avoid that. They're also in the 1861 census at this address. We believe that they may have stayed there until they left at the end of the decade to go back to America. The only other London sort of clue that we had or straw in the wind was an address from 1855, a place called Beaver Cottage, Hammersmith. Beaver spelt B-E-A-V-O-R. Okay. Don't know where that was. It could have been that that was 12 Cambridge Road before it got the number. Possible, but we don't know. We think possibly it was it was elsewhere it was another address so basically it was Hobson's choice it, the plaque had to go there but we're very fortunate that it survived at all because as I say one one house further north and it would have gone absolutely this is one of the crucial things about the blue plaques that the property in which the historic person or people lived has to still stand today so that people can actually go and see it and that the person putting up the plaque has something to put it on. But Hannah Rose, I understand that you actually were involved in nominating Ellen and William for this blue plaque. How did you get involved in doing that? Well, luckily, I researched William and Ellen Craft as part of my job. So already there's a little bit of privilege there and and things. But I basically went to English Heritage and sort of followed their very great and detailed instructions on their website. And one of the first things I did was to check whether they had been nominated or there was a plaque to them already, which in terms of English Heritage, there wasn't. There's a community plaque to the crafts in Hammersmith in general, but obviously not on the particular building where they lived. and I looked through the eligibility criteria and I emailed the team essentially to suggest the idea and they were really encouraging in general and so I filled filled out the the nomination form with details on obviously the building and of course that the crafts of the people who I was nominating and afterwards I've worked really closely with Howard which has been great to make sure we had the historical research and details right as Howard was just saying about the building And I just want to acknowledge here as well that Professor Barbara McCaskill and Professor Richard Blackett, two historians based in the US, they're some of the experts on on the crafts and they helped confirm sort of birth and death dates as well, which is it's very much a joint and collaborative process, right, Howard? So yeah, it was a... yes. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's been very enjoyable. It's very great to have got here, got to have got to this point where the black's up. Yes, I think, it, as we said in the introduction, it's really an important milestone, a real marker in the story of this pair and their fantastic journey. We did touch on this a little bit earlier, but it's probably worth asking just to give people who don't know the historical context, 
Howard, can you tell us why England was a suitable refuge for Ellen and William at this point in history? Well, it was because by what's called the Mansfield Judgment, or alternatively the Somerset ruling of 1772, meant that slavery effectively didn't exist as a condition in England because Lord Mansfield, who was Lord Chief Justice, decreed that there was no statute that specifically permitted it. And he also found that there was nothing under the English common law that permitted it. So therefore... It was effectively illegal. That's right. That's right. And, and, and as, they, as they say in the, the, at the frontispiece to Thousand Miles, they quote the poet William Cowper. Slaves cannot breathe in England. If their lungs receive our air, that means they are free. They touch our country and their shackles fall. So that's the reason. That's essentially it. Almost a legal loophole, really. Well, I mean, I mean, Mansfield created a situation where there was effectively a, a boundary within the British Empire because he didn't say anything about British possessions. And it took a while for that to sort of filter through. But it was a contradiction that meant that it gave great encouragement to abolitionists in Britain at that time, in the late 18th century. And of course, eventually, they did get the slave trade abolished in 1807. You got the abolition of the condition of slavery within British dominions in 1834, although historians now prefer to date that to 1838, which was the abolition of apprenticeship, which is what replaced slavery and, and greatly resembled it, essentially. But yeah, the Mansfield judgment, it, it did kind of all, all flow from that. And that's why they were able to find safer refuge in England. They were also 4,000 miles away from their enslavers. So there's the mere fact of physical distance. There's also the point that while there were some arrangements for extradition, it wouldn't have covered what they did. It was only for very major crimes. In any, in any case, they had actually broken no law apart from in the southern states. There was obviously this um, strong movement in the UK with other abolitionists, as, as you've mentioned, campaigning. Who were some of the key other figures from history that people might want to read up on who might also be commemorated with blue plaques in London? <laughs> That's my hope. I've already said that to Howard. But there are so many people that I would love to commemorate with it with a blue plaque as well as commemorate in general. I mean, there were quite literally thousands of anti-slavery lectures given by black freedom fighters in the UK during the 19th century. They spoke in churches, chapels, town halls, mechanics institutions, even open spaces to inform audiences about the realities and brutalities of, of US slavery. And some of the most famous include Frederick Douglass, who visited Britain three times. His first visit was between 1845 and 1847. He was essentially the most famous black abolitionist across the transatlantic, deeply committed to abolition, anti-racism, numerous social justice causes. And he was a sensation here during his lecturing tour. He revised a copy of his slave narrative, which sold thousands of copies. And there's actually already some plaques to Frederick Douglass around, around the country, which is really great. You also have women like Sarah Parker Remond, who actually worked with William and Alan Craft, stayed in their home during her lecturing tour at the end of the 1850s. Her visit inspired anti-slavery societies. She actually studied to become a physician in London as well. And lastly, again, too many to mention, but one of the people who I study in a lot of detail is Moses Roper. He traveled over to Britain in 1835, made several lecturing tours stretching into the late 1850s. And he's an oft forgotten figure. Again, perfect candidate for a plaque if we can find a particular building for him. He was bold, radical, completely uncompromising in his descriptions of the violence that he had personally experienced or witnessed during enslavement, and that led to a lot of controversy for him. Well, Howard's listening intently, so we'll try and get a placket to Moses at some point, I'm sure, Howard. 
Yes, we're working on doing more. I should mention one that we did do quite recently that, that uh, we were very pleased to make happen, and that was to um, Otterba Coguano, who's a author of a slave narrative, enslaved person's narrative from an earlier generation. He wrote a book called Thoughts and Sentiments on the Evil and Wicked Traffic of the Slavery and Commerce of the Human Species. It came out in 1787. Mm-hmm. And his blue plaque is on Schomburg House in Pal- on Pall Mall where he was a servant to the artist Richard Cosway and his wife Maria. That plaque went up late last year and it sits right opposite the plaque to Thomas Gainsborough, the the painter, on on the building. I see. So a, a nice duality there. Yes. So there will be more blue plaques, but obviously as we go back into the story, I presume there was still some opposition to these abolitionists and their movement, because whilst there is protests and and this movement, there must also be a bit of um, pushback from the established order. There always was that pushback, even in the earlier period. I mean, you get somebody like Wilberforce, who's the, the name that's always comes on people's lips first in terms of, you know, the, the, a, a um, politician who was an abolitionist in, in this country. He's mentioned on three blue plaques. I mean, the rule now is one per person. So, you know, you might even think that was slightly over the top. And he's extensively memorialised elsewhere. I mean, everybody wants a piece of Wilberforce these days, or at least they have done for the last 150 years or so. But in his own time, he was pretty well excoriated. I mean, he and his followers were nicknamed the Saints. And that was not a a complimentary nickname. They were nicknamed the Saints because they were thought to be sanctimonious. You know, so there was there was all that kind of treatment. And I think that the way that the West India Interest, as they were known, the West India Planters Committee was a, was a very well-organised, well-funded group who had members of parliament who very often bought their seats for rotten boroughs in, in, in the House of Commons to maintain their influence. You know, and the way they operated was the classic sort of playbook stuff, really. First of all, they denied there was a problem. They said the slaves were perfectly happy. And that became no longer tenable because there were so many slave narratives that said that that was not the case, clearly not the case. These enslaved people were telling people otherwise. Then they would mention this kind of the economic issues. They'd say, well, this is going to lead to massive economic dislocation and loss of prosperity. What they really meant was their prosperity, but there was obviously some knock-on effect and this would have generated, I guess, some general concern. And then they retreated another ditch and they said, well, we will abolish slavery. We can see that it's wrong, but we won't do it now. We'll do it later. Hmm. And it actually strikes me, it's very very interesting. It's, It's rather analogous goalpost relocation, isn't it? Absolutely. Analogous to the sort of arguments that have been used by certain fossil fuel companies more recently about climate change. You know, you you, you deny there's a problem to start with and then you retreat and retreat and retreat. Or cigarettes and smoking and lung cancer. Yes, there there are many other other comparisons, yeah. And the other one, of course, is is smearing opponents, which I think they did do that to Wilberforce and they did do that to black enslaved people who were authors of slave narratives later on. They said that the slave narratives weren't genuine and so on. So there are all sorts of tactics that... um, Disinformation and discrediting and all the old tricks, really. Yes, as as I say, it's the classic playbook for these kind of campaigns. Mm. Hannah Rose, you had uh, something to say as well about um, the pushback to the presence of the crafts in England. Yeah, absolutely. And this idea of opposition, you know, even later in the century to sort of add to what Howard has said is, is really important. And let's be clear about British society. It was a nation that had actively created, engaged in, profited from the slave trade and slavery. And it was a deeply racist society. So William and Ellen Craft, as well as other black abolitionists, had to contend with that society. They had to face racism from predominantly white audiences. 
white newspaper correspondents in their descriptions in the coverage of their lectures and even white abolitionists too which isn't a point that we necessarily tend to focus on and to give you a couple of specific examples with the crafts Ellen Craft was invited to sometimes very private and aristocratic parties and there we have numerous examples where she's challenging white people who were racist um, including authors and officials who were making incredibly racist comments about people of African descent and William Craft in 1863 actively challenged white British scientists who believed in wrote about and promoted an ideology called scientific racism and that ideology essentially focused on the fact that people of African descent were naturally biologically inferior because of their anatomy and their brain to the so-called Anglo-Saxon or white race and William Craft stood on stage not only in front of white audiences around the country but also physically in front of these white scientists who believed that racist ideology and declared that that ideology was based on white supremacy it was based on racism and it was obviously false but through the promotion of that ideology it actually promoted pro-slavery thought and slavery itself so it should be challenged constantly and linked to both of those things the crafts challenged the alliance of southern states called the confederacy during the u.s civil war fought between 1861 and 1865 on u.s soil the confederacy essentially promoted and represented slavery and the crafts and, and numerous other African-Americans who were traveling around the UK giving lectures during this period between 1861 and 1865 often received a lot of pushback from certain audiences in Britain, interruptions, shouting, certain rowdy meetings because of that conflict. And lastly, as a link to what Howard was saying and also to myself bringing up Moses Roper, Roper was actually slandered in the press quite frequently because he was so bold and graphic in his descriptions of the violence that he had experienced. White audience members tried to interrupt him, say that he was a liar. So going back to what Howard was saying in terms of trying to challenge what they were saying and trying to disprove what these abolitionists were saying. And again, white abolitionists tried to ruin his reputation as part of the same sort of slandering campaign. So it wasn't just the sort of racist white audience members that we think of. It was white abolitionists who prescribed to abolition, but still held very racist thoughts about people of colour. Yeah, they had a lot to contend with, didn't they, really? But um, about the blue plaque, are there any other physical markers in England that we can see to maybe their speaking tours, that, that sort of thing? The ones I know about are the village sign in, in Ockham in Surrey, which, as Hannah Rose has already said, is, is where they sort of first landed up and where they learned to read and write at the school there. The village sign actually went up in, in 2018. It specifically mentions them. It's the sign at the, uh, at the edge of the village. I also know about a mural in Bristol, which I just happened to run across when I was visiting a couple of years ago. I don't know that they had any particular connection to Bristol, other than that they may well have visited it on, on a tour, but maybe Hannah Rose knows about that. Bristol was a hub for them, actually. So one of the, the abolitionist families, the Esselin family, had really great connections, not only to British and Irish abolitionists, but also to American abolitionists. And the Crafts actually mentioned the Esselin family in Bristol as some of their sort of keenest supporters. So I'm assuming that's where the Bristol connection comes in. Uh, and also there's a community plaque, a brown plaque in Hammersmith, I, I believe. I haven't seen it myself. I don't know about you, Howard, but I, I know that that is in the area, but again, just not on the actual house where they lived. 
Yes, it's on. It's on a charity's office. I haven't actually seen it myself, but it's, it's yes, it's, it's very nearby. But it, it doesn't mark the uh, the exact house. So at least there are a few places where they are remembered, as well as in London, through the English Heritage Blue Plaque scheme. You mentioned that they learned to read and write in England, the craft couple. They went on to publish their story, as we've heard. And in 1860, Running a Thousand Miles for Freedom was published. What can you tell us about the book, Hannah Rose? I mean, is it a, is it a long story, for example? It's quite a short one in terms of book length, but it was quite common as part of this African-American literary tradition that these books or so-called slave or autobiographical narratives were published on both sides of the Atlantic. But what's really interesting about the Crafts book, it was published in, in London in 1860, as you say, it didn't actually have a US publication, which a lot of African-Americans would sometimes publish their books both in the US and in the UK. So I think that makes it a really important literary landmark, not only in Britain, but also in US history as well. And it is part of this tradition, as I say, where African-Americans wrote these anti-slavery protest pamphlets, these narratives, not only to write themselves into history, but to challenge their former enslavers, to serve as an important weapon in the anti-slavery cause, to encourage the destruction of US slavery. And the preface is actually written, I hope that this book may be the means of creating in some minds a deeper abhorrence of the sinful and abominable practice of enslaving and brutifying our fellow creatures. So it's a really radical book which details the craft's perilous journey to freedom and their role in the anti-slavery movement and what they believe their lives and that book meant to the anti-slavery movement. And it does say William Craft is listed as the main author of the work, but I suspect that both William and Ellen Craft had a hand in writing that. And if you think that they had travelled over to England and started lecturing in the early 1850s, so they'd had almost a decade of rehearsing the story to audiences. Mm. And when you read it, you get a real sense of, of how dangerous and death-defying their escape was. And that book ends with an account of them reaching England. And as I mentioned before, it was sold at the end of anti-slavery meetings as well. Of course. Their story obviously continues after the publication of the book in 1860. And you've mentioned already that they don't stay in England, which surprised me when I was doing my research for this podcast. So they go back to America. But why? So they return to Georgia in the US South at the end of the 1860s. And again, as they had done on British soil, they're deeply committed to numerous forms of social justice, which in this instant includes teaching formerly enslaved uh, women, men and children to read and write, to become self-sufficient, to develop their own vocations. And specifically, they invest a lot into a small community called Woodville in Georgia. And both William and Ellen are teachers, which is an incredibly important part of this activist work that they continue and also part of this period in US history as well. But the craft still faced racism and violence from white Americans, from white domestic terrorists groups like the KKK. And until their very last breath, they constantly challenged that white racism in, in the US and beyond, which is a really important point, I think. And did their children travel with them as well back to the States? Yes, I think two or three of their children remained behind. But what's really interesting about you bringing up the children is that I think their story doesn't end in the in the sort of traditional sense, as it were. Theirs is very much a multi-generational story where 
their children continued their parents' legacy and their role and participation in social justice causes. And I've been really lucky to meet, even today, some of the craft's descendants, some of whom were active, yeah, in the US civil rights movement and in the social justice movement today. So very much wielding that torch of freedom and honoring their ancestors. So that sort of social justice legacy is still with us today, which I think really summarizes how inspiring the crafts themselves were, but then also the family. As we sort of gradually wrap up our conversation, how difficult is it to research this kind of story? Where does the historian turn to for documentary evidence? So often these stories are hiding in plain sight. We're just choosing to privilege certain narratives over others. So it's really important to shift focus and actually champion the lives of of black people in British society as we're doing right now. But it can be very difficult in certain respects. And Traditionally, the archive has silenced or deliberately obscured the lives and stories of people of color. And and because of that, we have to be really creative in our approaches to that archive. So throughout my work over the years, I've consulted narratives and books, newspaper reports, letters, census records, adverts, broadsides, handbills, advertising lectures, diaries, pamphlets and various forms of catalogues, including Madame Two Swords from the late 1870s, would you believe, hmm. to uncover and actually do full justice to the lives of, of these people who gave invaluable and incalculable contributions to British society. And just on that note, there's also a privileging of, of written or, or literary history, which is important to point out as well. And I'm currently researching some African-Americans who traveled to the British Isles, who deliberately chose not to read and write and conform to what they saw as white Western standards of education. And instead of writing, they spoke to audiences using a range of visual materials that all seem to begin with P. So poetry, paintings, performances, plays, panoramas, uh, all of which they created and designed themselves. And we might not have images or complete records of what these would have looked like, but it's still really important to recognize the various means of technology and, and means of informing the British and Irish public about how they were interacting with and informing audiences, even if they don't necessarily conform to what we're looking for in the archive about written records. What about you, Howard? You pore over records the whole time, don't you, for your work? So um, was it difficult to research this sort of story for you? Yeah, yeah, it is. does present new challenges. My mind goes back to a much more recent in terms of time frame case, and that's the one of Bob Marley where i mean normally we would we would look to pin someone at a particular address using things like the census i mean we've got the crafts in the census it's very fortunate that we do but he he doesn't appear in that he's not in the electoral registers nor 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 were the crafts at that time because they wouldn't have had the vote at that point so it takes us out of our usual kind of comfort zone in terms of those things and for bob marley i think the thing was to follow on for something hannah rose said was to put due weight on to survivor testimony oral evidence which, I mean, we know that has its pitfalls and its drawbacks, as in people do get stuff wrong. People misremember. Mm. People misremember where they've lived sometimes, and certainly they get dates wrong and things like that. But if if you've got a number of people saying the same thing and all the evidence points in one direction, then that's pretty powerful. And there was actually some documentary evidence that he, he lived at the address where the plaque is in Chelsea. But it, it's just interesting that, you know, I mean, he died as, as recently as 1981. So you would expect there to be some record survival. And actually, I suspect there probably is somewhere in the Island Records archive, which is unsorted and which they weren't prepared to let me into. understandably. (laughs) But it's interesting that even from that period, you're struggling with traditional, inverted commas, 
documentary evidence of the sort that we normally use to pin people at certain addresses. It's also interesting that in the Crafts case, we have a reliable death date for William. We don't entirely know when he was born. For Ellen, we're not sure about either birth or death date. Ditto Otobakuguano. You know, this, this, is, this is quite unusual for us to have to put question marks onto plaques, but it goes with the territory. Though. It's, it's, not a, it's not a story that appears in the written record in the same way that many of the other cases that, that, that we deal with do. Mm. Well, whatever the specifics, I think a lot of their story obviously does survive through their literature that they wrote, the story that became that thousand miles to freedom. That's the critical thing is that their words do survive. And I would recommend anybody to have a read of that book because it's pretty powerful. I think the bit I found the most powerful was that was the stuff at the beginning about his own family experiences of being separated from members of his family. And you think, well, that's this is this is the context. This is the background. This is why he felt that he and Ellen had to get out, no matter what the risk. Absolutely. Hannah Rose, how would you sum up the Crafts as a couple, their daring exploits, their return to the US even after abolition in 1865? Uh, They sound like incredibly courageous people. It's a big question. And I think the most important things to say are that they were powerful, inspirational freedom fighters who, as I mentioned, led a daily battle against US slavery, racism, their entire lives, they're active in social justice movements and not just anti-slavery, but suffrage as well. And their lives are, are stories not only of radicalism, but kinship with their fellow enslaved brethren or African-Americans, collaboration, working with both black and white abolitionists. I think I always like to champion Ellen in particular as well, because that whole performance rested pretty much entirely on her if we're thinking about in terms of particularly when she's sat in that white Sony carriage in that train, the bravery that that would have taken. And the holding the nerve as well. Keep your breathing regulated and keep that heart rate down and just not sweat too much, I think. Right, exactly. Just, just, and, and that she would have been there for hours. You know, those four days might seem insignificant for us, but again, the sheer risk that that journey would have taken and the fact that many others tried to escape more broadly to try and escape in a similar way and they're unsuccessful so the fact that they managed to escape and i guess lastly i'd say as well that this is very much a transatlantic story they were very much a part of the london landscape they had a deep impact on british and american society anti-slavery circles And I think their lives and stories should be compulsory on the national curriculum, let alone the fact that both their names should be, you know, well known. So hopefully the plaque will shine a light on their inspirational lives because of that. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're dipping into dairy history with an episode all about butter. When you go to a dairy, it's a really interesting space. The Kenwood one is both ornamental, a place for leisure, a place for work, a place to showcase technological change. You know, it's loads of different things all in one. Thanks for listening. See you next time.